0: Hey, Profs. Welcome on in. My name's Rob Lightfoot, proud two-time alum the Rick Edelman College of Communication, class of 2000-2001. This is Beyond the Brown and Gold.
1: I'm Jessica Kennedy. I'm the co-host here, also a two-time proud Rowan alum, class of 2008 from the Rick Edelman College of Communication and Creative Arts, and 2015 from the College of Education. Thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM presents Beyond the Brown and Gold, a show that highlights the lives and memories of Glassboro State and Rowan University alumni. Now, here are your hosts, Rob Lightfoot and Jessica Kennedy.
1: On today's show, we have a virtual guest who started here When it was just Rowan College and graduated with university status.
0: And I feel like it was so like, I don't know, to get like on point. I feel like he was virtual. I feel like he was here.
1: I know. He wasn't. He was so good at relationships. His name is Jason Levin. He is a 1997 grad, an accounting major, and he has a a book. He's the founder of an organization. Rob, why don't you tell us a little bit more? Yeah,
0: so he talked about his time here at university being so foundational for his career, who he'd become as a person and and traveled internationally, spent a couple years in France. Yeah, we talk about that. I attempted my chance. I attempted my... French yeah it but was really
1: wait it, till you hear how fun that was <laughs> yeah it kind of fell flat but anyway
0: uh, so he did a bunch of things has come back now to the US is doing big things with uh with social sciences wrote a book uh, and and helping coach people up in their in their career so it's, it's it's great and Jason's a great lesson take a listen yeah.
1: so in the studio today we have a virtual guest who is donning brown and gold he is right proud rowing gear look at that. Rowan, 1923. Love it. You came prepared, Jason. How are you today?
2: I'm doing really well. I'm sporting my brown and gold. So I figure, you know, if I'm going to do a Rowan podcast, I might as well, like, you know, go into the colors. And we have to act really surprised, Jess, because we basically interviewed him for a good (laughs) 10, 15 minutes before we even started recording. So we already know know the secrets, but we'll act surprised when we ask Yeah,
1: we will act surprised. So you're virtual today, so you're not in studio with us. So where are you coming from today?
2: Coming from my virtual home office in Washington, D.C.
1: And how long have you been in D.C. for? Uh,
2: 15 years now. Oh, my.
1: Feel like it's been a little bit of time since we've been out to DC, but we know we have a pretty good crew out there, and we've been able to gather. Maybe it was a like three years ago. Yeah, it we was, were in DC. Yeah,
0: three four years ago, I think pre
1: COVID, we were in DC, and we do try to get out there because we know we have a good amount of alumni there.
0: Should come and then, back, and it's a great area because I've been in my travels for Rowan. I've been to you know DC, a, de- a decent amount. I actually fell in love with the place. Now okay. I was staying just around. The the city proper there. So I wasn't going to the suburbs too often, but it's a really it's a great spot.
1: So you didn't grow up in D.C., right? Where are you? Where did you originally grow up?
2: So I grew up in uh, northwest New Jersey. I grew up in Randolph, New Jersey, outside of Morristown. So which is about two hours north of Glassboro.
0: So tell us uh, sort of how you sort of landed at Rowan University from Morristown.
2: So flashback to 1992 when I was a senior in high school and my guidance counselor said, you know, there's this place called Glassboro State that just got a lot of money. You should go visit it. And I remember driving down with my mom to do a campus tour and it was a beautiful day, spring day. And I'm walking around campus, and the rec center was brand new at the time, and it felt like home. And I said, "Mom, let's put a let's put down a deposit." And it uh, and it was probably one of the better decisions I ever made in my uh, in my life. I had applied to uh, Rowan College and actually graduated from Rowan University, which. Um, it was a fun trajectory. I feel yeah. like
1: some people have feelings about the name change, but how cool to come in to one situation and then leave with university status. That's pretty neat.
2: Yeah, pretty special. And did you know what you wanted to do at that time? I had no idea what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to get involved uh, and I had a lot of ideas, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, like any other 18 year old, I had no idea what I was you know, thinking about. Um, but the, the fun part was, you know, on, on the involvement piece, I was like, all right, what can I get involved with? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not that athletic. So, you know, I didn't make any of the the Rowan sports teams. Uh, but, you know, uh, I'm not shy. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to run for freshman class president.
1: Wow, coming Uh, in hot. (laughs) Yeah, honestly.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And my campaign was, I I put on these posters, all the, you remember the Far Side comics? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that was my campaign. And, uh, And I just got out there and, you know, said vote for me and I won. And you and you have to understand at the time that the dining hall situation was so different. Like today, like I've been on campus. It was probably about a year or two ago. I went into Rowan's Dining Hall. I was like, oh, my God, this is like a Las Vegas buffet. <laughs> you know, in 1993, when I started, you know, you had a freshman dining hall in the upper part. And then the downstairs is where all the, all the upperclassmen went. It was a different card system. We didn't have access to those cards. And so we just had the meal plan. There was that was And that was it. And then there was a separation on dessert. And so that was my, my, <laughs> my whole goal for the year as freshman class president was to get freshmen to have frozen yogurt. Yeah, I'm voting yeah. for you. So like vanilla, chocolate, swirls, like none of it. So I said, all right, we're going to fix this. And by and literally, I was, I was almost crying. It was February or March of my freshman year, when they finally, we went through all the processes, we did all the necessary, and that freshman got yogurt. And I was like, this is awesome. This is progress.
1: That was your first experience at all the red tape of higher education, <laughs> yeah. right? You're like, yeah. wait, can't we just get an ice cream machine in here? Why is this so that hard? It was huge
2: because Froyo was big back then. And I think the way they had made an exception was that we would get tickets because the computer system didn't like talk to one another because of sure. that separation between freshmen and um, upper class. So I was like, all right, I'm in, I'm sold. Like, if we can get yogurt, Anything's possible.
1: I mean, honestly, I am a big ice cream fan. My neighbor was just making fun of me because we were at the ice cream truck together. And I was talking to the guy. I know my ice cream driver. His name is Bree. We became very friendly when I was pregnant with my That's second. It's too, close. That's too, close. too no, close. to home. I got yeah. ice cream every Tuesday. So like every Tuesday, it's like you see the same person at the same time every week. You got you to make friends. Is and- this at
0: home or is this your yeah. current home?
1: Yeah, my current home. Oh boy. Well, now nah. <laughs> anyway. I understand the yeah. importance of ice cream because I'm a person that knows my ice cream driver by their first name, so I would have voted for you as well. Rob's so, not happy that go. my ice cream driver well, knows my well, name. Well, I guess no.
0: You. Well, it gets into the conversation we're going to get to. I guess building relationships with people and trying to figure this stuff out. So, we'll, but we'll get we'll get there. We're not there yet. So after you had this huge win with the frozen yogurt, your next piece obviously was like, well, let me figure out what to major in now that I'm going to be at this university.
2: Yeah, and you know, I was I was a pre major. And, you know, the, the parental advice was, you know, uh, go major in accounting. You're always going to have a job. And so I majored in accounting and I minored in French because uh, I, uh, I had taken French in high school. And so and I almost got a double minor when I graduated. I was one class away from speech communication. So I was hanging out with you guys over at GLS also. But I, so I, I started with accounting. And, you know, accounting was hard. You know, the, you know, Rowan's accounting program was no joke. So, but I'm, I'm glad I majored in, you know, and the cool thing about the business school is that you have a wide array of business classes in addition to your accounting concentration. Uh, but yeah, that was my major. It was a great experience. I really, uh, I really enjoyed it.
0: Were you doing all your accounting in French?
2: Uh, deux, trois, quatre, cinq, six, six.
1: Oh, wow. Oh, there's,
0: there's just a background huh? still, still sticks. Oh, très
2: bien. Il y a quelqu'un qui parle français. Yeah, I've lost that
1: now. Sorry. I'm sorry. He <laughs> only knows how to count. I only knew how to count. You tried to impress uh, us, but that, it was, way, yeah, that was way
0: back far. That was like from like seventh grade, I drew that memory. Wow. Yeah.
1: When you were an accounting major, did you know that you might not pursue accounting, or was it something that you felt strongly about? Is it something that you did pursue once you left? Or
2: As I was going through, I I think there was there was like a kind of like a parallel things that were happening. So one was after winning freshman class president, I got addicted to student government and then, you know, one sophomore class president. And then at the end of my sophomore year, I became SGA president. So, and so from an accounting side, it was really interesting because I was very lucky to have won a second term. One of the things that happens at the end of every SGA year is you get audited financial statements. And so being in an accounting major, I actually was able to look at the audited statements and I said, well, wait a minute, in our student activity fee revenue, there's a discrepancy. We actually made more money, like tens of thousands of dollars. So uh, I go to uh, Larry Reeder at the time, who was the head of finance. I said, look at this. This is the money you allocated to us. This is the money we actually made. It's, you know, I think it was like a $30,000 difference. I said, what happened? And so he's talking about we make an estimate and then get the actual reality. And I said, well, if it's happened in this year, has it happened in prior years? He said, absolutely. It happens pretty much every year. And usually we're pretty conservative. I said, so where does that money go? He's like, well, we have this account. Uh, I said, well, how much money is that in that account? And he's like, a million dollars. Wow. And I was like, what? So my senior year.
1: You're like, I'm going to spend that mill.
2: <laughs> we're going to spend the money. So I, Well, there were, there were two things we did. One, we spent the money. So the, the ambulance for the EMTs, it lasted for like 25 years after we bought that ambulance. But uh, the MTS needed an ambulance, and so we went through a whole process to get an ambulance for the MTS. And every time I came to campus, I'd show my wife, "I'm like, look, there's the ambulance." (laughs) (laughs) So one, we got an ambulance for the MTS. We also got a new bus for the sports teams. Uh, So we're like really doing like foundational things to like help the student body. And then on the second piece, I'm like, well, wait a minute. You know, I'm going to leave. We're all going to leave. Why don't we come up with a committee to help manage this money? And so, because we're a state university, one of the things we did was a, a finance subcommittee with the students, with the administration. How do we think about this? Just by switching over the accounts from like a regular check, I, don't, I forget what account it was in, into like I think we went to T-notes or T-bills, just raising the interest rate because we're a public university. We couldn't put it in other investments that weren't backed by the US government. I think we, in the first year, we did $80,000 more just on interest alone. Yeah. So that's where I was geeking out. I'm like, oh, this is how I was going to use my accounting major, right? Like, you know, just like reading and like. Real application, though, is real life Mm -hmm. application instead of just from a book. So you had like one where I was doing the accounting stuff. And then on the French stuff, I had always wanted to go to France. And so I started to talk to everybody on campus. I'm like, you know, I'm really interested in going to France and spending a summer there. And one of our board of trustees uh, said, well, listen, uh, I can put you in touch with the former speechwriter to the U.S. ambassador to France. I was like, well, that sounds cool. And that was in my junior year. And, you know, I was also fascinated by the, um, you know, that Tootsie Pop commercial How many licks does it take to get to the center? And I was always fascinated by like, you get somebody's phone number and they never call you back. And so I'm like, what if I marry the Tootsie Pop idea with phone calling? How many phone calls does it take to get somebody to call you back? So I set up a whole thing in my, um, I had a notebook and I had a pen. And I'm like, let's see how long it's going to take to get this person to call me back. And so I would call the person and leave a voicemail once or twice a month, September, October. November, December, January. I think by February, he finally called me back. And he's like, It sounds like you really want to do this. And I'm really sorry, I've been busy. And I was like, Yeah, I, you know, I'd love to talk to you more. And he's like, Let me see what I can do. Another month goes by and, and like nothing. And then he finally calls me back. And I'm in April, and I still had nothing for the summer. He said, I think we might be able to do something. Send me your resume. He sends it, he he makes a phone call. And then a day later, I get this phone call. And so like the day later, embassy in Paris is like, "We'll we'll take you. Well, yeah. you, ha- you can have an internship with us. You're going to need to like bypass all of these different things because all the like real interns are going through the State Department, the whole process. They're going to be in the embassy. But if you want, you're an accounting major. We need somebody to work with the finance person in the ambassador's residence, at the U.S. Embassy in Paris, within the ambassador's residence. I'm like, sign me up. (laughs) But they're like, we're not going to pay for your flight. We're not going to pay for your lodging. Nothing. You got to get over here. And so I was very lucky through another program. I was already going to uh, Germany for a few weeks. So my mom helped me get a flight into Paris. And then I stayed in a youth hostel for two weeks, you know, going back and forth to the residence—that wouldn't be my jam either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, it was. I, had, I had roommates every every day, every night. I had to lock up my stuff. I was just like, it was chaos. And so the 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 finance manager felt really bad for me because like I had a book home before they, you know, had these lock. You know, it was not not a lockdown, but a curfew at like eleven o'clock at night. And so after two weeks, he's like, "All right." I've spoke to the people internally and we'll keep it quiet, but we're going to move you into the residence and you're going to stay with the butlers and the maids. There we go. Now we're talking, Jason. Yeah. So it's like it was the best summer ever. Rowan University helped me get to the US ambassador's residence in Paris. And like for that summer, the summer of 1996, it was amazing. Like I saw my it's like a home away from home. I love Paris. Love everything about Paris.
1: Also, you can't discount yeah. yourself because Rowan helped you get there, but your persistence of calling sure, twice yeah. a month for months, <laughs> I mean, that's that's a skill set to make sure that you can do something like that.
2: It was so foundational. I came back my senior year. I go from Paris back to Glassboro. Some of the people are like, Jason, you look a little unhappy. I'm like... I miss France. I
0: miss, I miss the <laughs>
1: cheese.
2: <laughs> but they're like, look at all this frozen yogurt we have.
1: <laughs> dairy, scary, you know?
2: <laughs> yeah. So when I was thinking about, and you, you got to understand, graduating in 1997, if you look at the data uh, in the last 50 years, 1997 was what, the one of the best times to graduate college in terms of campus recruiting. So, and actually I tried to get back to France. I actually got an internship through a program that brought American Jews to Israel. And so I was working for a venture capital firm in Tel Aviv on Israeli defense force technologies and how they were commercializing it. So it was really interesting stuff. So all the precursors to, you know, how we chat and how like there are a lot of them are former Israeli defense force technologies that eventually got bought out by AOL and Microsoft and all these, you know, tech firms. So it was fun to be like in Tel Aviv in like, you know, the late, you know, in 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 97 and I tried to get back to France. And unlike in the US in 97 where like everything was a boom, like France was going through an unemployment rate that was just ridiculous. So I came back to the US and having this tech background um and also because 97 was such a good year for uh, graduates, I had gone through an interview process with Anderson Consulting. And I said, Listen, I want to go to Israel. I'm going to defer this this offer. And they said, Listen, you are not guaranteed a spot when you come back, but keep in touch. And I said, Well, if you want me to keep in touch, that I can do. So
0: <laughs> he's I like, have
2: this he's mean a... <laughs> marble notebook.
1: He's like, I've done that before, right. actually.
2: So what I did, anywhere I went that summer in Tel Aviv, I would send the recruiter, a postcard. And so every two or three weeks, the recruiter would get a postcard from me. Hey, thinking of you, just keep it in touch. And so I went, You know, I was in Tel Aviv, I was in Cairo. I went to Naples and Athens and like always sending the Anderson Consulting recruiter a postcard. So smart. Okay, wait, where did
1: you learn to do this? Did anybody demonstrate this behavior for you? A parent, were you just a persistent kid?
2: You know, when I was in Paris, you know, so on one side, it's like, oh my God, Jason, you're at the US ambassador's residence in Paris. On weekends, I didn't know anybody. And frankly, I was lonely. Right. So, what would I do? I'd go to the Musee d'Orsay, I'd get a cup of coffee, I'd take a stack of postcards, and Mm -hmm. I actually would write them to like Roman administrators, my friends, my family. I'm like, hey, I'm thinking of you guys. I had nothing else to do.
1: That's nice.
2: When I got back, what I didn't realize is what it meant to everybody that they had gotten those postcards. Mm -hmm. And so, actually, in, 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 to this day, I mean, you know, I've actually gotten back into postcard rating. I haven't you written know, a it, postcard it, in a while. I
1: don't think I've ever written one, but I used to buy them when I would go places. I don't think I ever sent it to anybody, just kept it for myself. But Jason, I can, get, Jason, one? can I I get one from Pittman. Yeah, can you send us a postcard the next place you go? <laughs> like, <laughs> All right, done. You got a city. deal.
2: Hey, here's the cool thing you, you know, like if you look at it domestically, you can get a postcard at any CVS in any city or when you land in an airport in any Hudson News, right? So if you're actually looking for postcards, you can always find them. Um, And so, yeah, so it was actually that summer in Paris where, like, I didn't know anybody. I had nothing else to do. I'm like, all right, I'm just going to sit around and just write postcards to people. And when I came back to Glassboro, everybody was like, oh, my God, thanks for thinking of me. That meant a lot. I put it up here. This is great. Tell me more about that. And so then it dawned on me. I'm like, wow, this postcard thing, is like, it's like a thing. It's something that, like, people... And so that same summer in Tel Aviv, I'm like, all right, let me make a longer list of people. And I just start, you know, every week I'm like, all right, I'll write that one a postcard. I'll write them a postcard. And then I promised the recruiter in Anderson Consulting I'm going to keep in touch. They're always going to get a postcard. And by the time I got back from Tel Aviv and I tried to get back to uh, France for a job, and again, they still weren't hiring me, I called the Anderson Consulting person. And she was like, listen, I could never respond to you but I would show your postcards to everybody on the recruiting team. You're the only one who actually said they were going to keep in touch and actually. And so that's how uh, I got back in. Uh, And I started with Anderson consulting in January of 98. And it was, it was a great experience. So then where does your, where does
0: your career take you from there though? You, you land this
2: role and then. So I landed the role. And so I was working on a project in Phoenix for American express for a couple of years, always wanting to get back to France because what one thing I realized is that if you're at a U.S. embassy in a foreign country, you're not going to learn the local local language, and so I ended up feeling that I wanted to still get out there. And at Rowan, that I learned about the Rotary scholarship, and so it was actually a couple of Rowan administrators. First, it was Bob Harris, may you rest in peace, and then Carol Madison, who was the provost at the time. They were my you know Rotary host counselors or host like supporters. And actually it was uh, a rotary scholarship from South Jersey that sent me to France. So I spent a couple of years at Anderson and then I got, I did a year of grad study in Lyon, which is France's food capital, back to food. You know, (laughs) I was skiing in the winter time because it's not that far from the French Alps and I was hanging out with other international students. It was good living. It was like college all over again. I was being funded, you know, on a rotary scholarship and You had all these subsidies as a student in France. So like the apartment wasn't that expensive. You know, we were going out and doing things. It was super fun. Uh, And I was able to translate that into actually moving to Paris. And I got a French consulting firm to get my papers. Hardest job search in my life. And uh, I ended up working and living in Paris for four years afterwards. So I ended up living in France for five years, which was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. Had an apartment by the Madeleine Church, so you know, like living and working in a, you know, in a different culture, you just like you learn so much about yourself.
1: What was one um, big takeaway from your time that you learned about yourself? Maybe the most life changing.
2: You know, I think the most life changing thing is that you know what if I focus on something, it's possible, and it's just a matter of timing. Because th- I had tried to get a job at, in France at other times, and that wasn't the right time it doesn't mean that you just give up. It's just like, you just keep trying. One of the other things that I loved about France uh, and through the Rotary Club, you know, taking my SGA uh, stuff that I had done, I'm like, how can I get active in, in, in Paris? And actually Rotary had an alumni association of former Rotary scholars that was run by a group of French scholars that had come to the US or gone to other places and they were welcoming all these foreign scholars. So when I moved to Paris, I had already done their fun events. So like we would go to the Champagne region and hang out with the Rotarians in Champagne country. We would go to, you know, uh, ski in the Alps with the Rotarians in the Alps. I was, I was like, this is too cool. And the president of the Times like, listen, I'm rolling off. We've never done this before, but would you be interested in taking over the association? I was like, sign me up. And really good. Say yeah. yes to
1: everything. I'd be like, no, I'm good. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Can we, let me think about, let me write you a postcard. i let you know what I'm thinking yeah. about. And what, what I feel really lucky about is that in one of the incoming classes, I met my future wife. And after I did my MBA, uh, I went to work for Unilever on Dove lotions, Dove creams, Dove soaps. So, I mean, look look at my skin. You You look very well moisturized. Very well moisturized. I was just telling Jess off hair. Uh, So, I moved back to DC and this was uh, in 2007, 2008. And who called me was the uh, Career Center, the NBA Career Center Georgetown. And they said, listen, we remember what you had done for us. I had gotten my offer early and I was just helping my classmates find jobs. And so they invited me to, they're like, why don't you come coach for us? So, this is for like, 15 years ago, somebody called me a coach, like, a, yeah, like a career coach. And I was like, oh, what is that? We're asking you to do what you already do. And so they're like, in your second year of business school, when you got your job offer early with Unilever, what did you do, Jason? You helped your classmates with mock interviews. You helped them with job search strategies. You gave them all these different things. You were like an extension of the career center. That's called a career coach. I was like, oh, OK, I can do that. So that initial idea then spurned into, um, I got called uh, by a, the actually the former head of the career center went to a career website called Vault, uh, Vault.com. It rates and ranks employers, and they said, "Listen, you know, we need somebody in DC. Would you be interested in working remotely and running a remote sales team, selling to?" The federal government and Fortune 500 companies, and law firms, and accounting firms, and consulting firms. I'm like, sure. So in 2008, I say no to anything. I know. Sure, sure. sure. So I had a. I've been virtually now for 15 years. Wow. So
1: you were virtual virtual. before it was actually a thing to be virtual.
2: I was fully virtual for 15 years. Go to meeting, all those kinds of things. I was doing webinars and presentations like 2010, 2011. So it took an acclamation, and, and I understand, like, you know, when we were in lockdown, what people were going through and that loneliness that we had, because we didn't have that connection. Right. And I, I remember in 2008, when I went fully virtual, I'm like, my wife's going to an office and I'm just at home.
1: Yeah, like, and where I, are the people?
2: I, where are my people? So I need to get and find my people. So you know I got out involved in the community and and got involved in different types of things and I'm like okay now I've got my community uh but it takes intention it takes effort it takes a whole host of things and so over the 3 years that I was running this remote um sales team hitting and exceeding my numbers and if you can believe in 2011 after the 08 crash 08 09 2010 and all the while our wonderful website that had a great Content, but like we were competing against LinkedIn, we were competing against Facebook, we we're competing about all these platforms. And finally, if you can believe in in 2011, a website said, "All right, we're going to close down all our remote offices. We want you to come back to the New York headquarters." And I was like, "So this is 2011," and I'm like, "I'm here with. I'm married. My uh, oldest son now is six months old, and." I said no.
0: there's our, yeah, <laughs> our first no. our
2: first one.
1: It took what? How many years? How old were you the first time you said no?
2: <laughs> I said no, and uh, I knew I was getting laid off. If you can, but, so you know, in 2011, and they, and, you know, they were they were fine. It was, and, and my my boss at the time was super great on like you know creating a package and whatever. But you know, if you can think about it, in 2011, I got laid off from a website because they wanted to consolidate all their remote employees to a home office right in New York. And my wife at the time, God bless her, she said, Jason, you've been coaching on the side for all this time. What would you say to yourself? And in 2011, I said, I want to write a book. I want to write a book about keeping in touch. And that book is going to be called Relationships to Infinity. And she's like, Go do it.
1: You know what? Don't go find a new job and bring in some income. Why don't you just sit and write a book? I feel like that <laughs> takes—that's
0: it.
2: Does
1: that's a good woman? Yeah. You got there.
2: I I am blessed. I'm very blessed. And she, you know, she was working at a law firm, so she had a you know very good salary, and that, that was fine, and everything was good. And then I came to realize there's no money in writing a book. You first have to write the book, and then you have to get all these different things. And I was like, I still want to write the book. But like, I got to go, I got to go out and do something. And so, so that's when I started coaching and started speaking and all those things. And every year at the end of the year, I'd say to my wife, all right, this is the year I'm going to write the book. 10 years go by and I'm building this practice. You
1: have an even better woman than I thought.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And and every year I'm like, this is the year I'm going to write the book. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And by the way, my wife is the writer's writer. And, you know, after three years, I'm out of my own. My wife starts her side hustle, then grows into like a main hustle. She writes a book before me. All the while I'm talking about writing a book, she actually writes a book. So she wrote a book called Back to Work After Baby, uh, How to Have a Mindful Return After Your Maternity Leave, right? And, pandemic happens. We go into lockdown. I see how miserable everybody is. And I had gotten contacted by this reporter I'd done some radio with on Bloomberg. And she's like, listen, I took this book writing class through Georgetown. I just wrote a book. I think you have a book in you. And she didn't even know I wanted to write a book. Hmm. She's like, I think you should write your book through this program. I've never signed up faster for something. Did you feel
0: like you
1: needed a little push?
2: Oh, I needed, not only a lot, I needed a big push, not a little push, but a big push. And so book class got me, you know, to, you know, get the manuscript. My lovely wife, who's a wonderful writer and editor, helped me, you know, land the thing. And so so this came out uh, a year and a half ago. Uh, and I am over moon excited that something I said I wanted to do, like 10, 12 years ago, is here.
1: Now you also are the founder of Ready, Set, Launch, LLC. So tell us a bit about that.
2: So working at Unilever, I was on the brand management side of making new products, or innovating new products. And when you bring that to market, that's known as a product launch. Just thinking through all the things that need to happen for someone to launch themselves in their career, for someone that wants to launch themselves into a new professional services practice, like an accountant, a consultant, I said, you know what, I want to call this business Ready, Set, Launch, because what if we brought the same principles we that Unilever and Clorox and Procter and & Gamble and all the big consumer goods companies use, what if we bring it to people? Uh, and so that's the foundation of my work. And I find inspiration just by going to the grocery store.
0: So with that in mind... And then yeah. this book for Relationships to Infinity, which, by the way, I love that Daniel Pink reviewed it. Daniel Pink's got some great stuff. I love Daniel Pink's stuff. Like, Daniel Pink is, like, next level. That'd be exciting for you.
2: I had a heart, I had a heart attack when he sent his review back. <laughs> Honestly, I would have, too. I'd be I, like, what? I I, I was, like, like, I was having, like, these big... I was like breathing heavy. I was like, Oh my God. Daniel Pick is, is is huge, huge in the space. So when when you,
0: this book obviously is about relationships and such like that. And then you've, you've told us about your whole career, how you've, you've created these relationships or, you know, found ways to stand out with the postcards, right. Instead of just, and the phone calls and stuff like that. And that type of like communication, Um, unless the secrets in the book, you don't have to give it out here, but I guess what I want to talk to you about is talk to us in, in a world today where we've got, people just living in their inbox and trying to communicate with others and ways to stand out and talk about what that looks like now for you and how you coach people along maybe for their sales careers or other pieces so that they are different and standing out Mm -hmm. in this communication world where everybody is bombarded with notifications the emails and everything else
2: i talk a lot about this um you know for me it's about listening First, listening to yourself. We get a lot of projection in our life. What we should do. So, I think the first part of listening is listening to yourself. Who? You, what are the things that you like to do that bring you energy? And then, in terms of connecting with that, you know, you could be a salesperson, you could be a fundraiser, you could be an accountant, you could be any number of things. When you think of your interactions with people, because not all, you know, so we're in a remote setting, right? How is it that you show up to each of your interactions? Are you just going through the day or are you actually trying to connect with the person in front of you, connect with your colleagues, connect with people at the grocery store, saying hi to the crossing guard? Like,
1: the how are tractor. you? <laughs> <laughs> Boom.
2: <laughs> you know, I, I think connection is becoming an overused word. Hey, let's connect. But are you really just showing up to be available for that connection? Uh, Because we don't know where people are these days, um, both in their physical space and how they're showing up. So the more that we can show up as a human being, I think that allows for us to take in information and then remembering that and saying, well, wait a minute, how was, you know, we had talked about that thing last week where, you know, your car got dented. Did it get fixed? How's that going for you? And I think that the more that, so on one side, it's the listening piece. And then the book, I talk about this the importance of sharing a memory, foundational. And, you know, some people have a gratitude practice. You know, I'm grateful for all the wonderful things in my life and those kinds of things. What I'm advocating for is what if you were to take that gratitude piece and overlay it with your network? How many times. Have you done things for people, they may or may not have thanked you in for doing that, but what about two years later, five years later, 10 years later, 20 years later, are you still showing appreciation for what they taught you, right? You know, one of the things I'm gonna do after this, and it's been on my mind, is when I was in college and I was SGA president and I needed to give a speech uh, for the, uh, the opening of the library, which is now the Campbell Library, right? And it was a convocation speech. I needed to give it in front of a thousand people. I was scared. Who did I go to? I I went to Dr. William Kushner in the communications department. I said, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm supposed to give a two minute talk. I don't know what, you know, I've done campaign talks for college students, but this is different. It's like, sit down. Wrote the speech. We rehearsed it together. He sat in the audience. I delivered it. He gave me feedback afterwards. And for the two years I was SGA president, he was my speechwriter. But and the joke was, because Ed Streb was the speechwriter for President James. And so the running joke was who had the better speechwriter? But I I thank Dr. Kushner every single time I can, because I have not forgotten what he was able to do for me. Jason, full pause at a period, half pause on a comma. Read the sentence and stop. And those types of lessons i still take with me
1: relationships are important but they're two ways right so taking genuine interest in somebody but also offering part of yourself as part of that connection is important too
2: you know and here's the thing relationships are totally a two-way street you know and i say this all the time like i don't have like these deep relationships with Thousands and thousands of people. There's plenty of people that look at me and like, ah, Jason, yeah, I'm not interested. And that's okay. Like, we're not made to like get along with everybody. What I'm advocating for is the people you already know, like, and trust that you've interacted with over the years. You're actively ignoring. We're not actively ignoring. You're just not thinking about them. And what I've crafted with research in the social science that says the people that you've already come to know, like, and trust, whether it's one year out or three years out or five years out, 15 years, doesn't matter. They remember you. They want to hear from you and that connection is still alive and well.
0: From the book side and from sharpening sort of what you do in your craft besides your own book, is there a favorite author, favorite book right now that you're reading that adds to, adds value to kind of what you're delivering to your clients?
2: So the the one book that changed everything for me, and I and I still reread it. Um, so a tipping point from uh, Malcolm Gladwell, Foundational. What he talks about is, you know, how ideas get passed and the different pipe, types of people that you have in your world. So love that one. You know, he's a big Rowan uh, fan, by the way. No, I remember listening to his revisionist history and that, that hour he did where like, here Henry Rowan gave $100 million. Why don't we have 50 other philanthropists that did the same thing? It was, that, was, that was an awesome Rowan uh, event. Yeah. Like Malcolm Gladwell is talking. I, like I was crying. We've made it when Malcolm Gladwell is talking about us. Of the, you know, I love a lot of the pink books uh, for me to sell as human yeah. uh, because it, it goes back to listening. And actually, Pink's last book actually further, you know, and I, I think I didn't ask him why he blurred my book, but if you look at Pink's last book, uh, The Power of Regret, and in The Power of Regret, you have, I think he did over 100 countries and he inter- uh, surveyed 15, 16,000 people. And he was able to categorize what are the types of regrets that we have as human, human beings. The number one regret, connection regrets. We regret losing touch with people. And so I was like, oh, my book. So I'm writing a book completely, not knowing he's writing a book about regret. My book, you know, comes back to helping uh, folks with connection. So, how do people get your book? Amazon Kindle. I even did an audio version so you can, uh, if you're into audio books, I, uh, I recorded my own book, which is really hard. And wherever you find books online. I'm going to follow you on LinkedIn. I'm going to add you.
0: I, I live love- on LinkedIn. I just love a good LinkedIn story.
2: <laughs> well, here's the thing, Rob. All right. So let's let's talk about LinkedIn. So my member number is 141,172. I joined LinkedIn in January of 2004. LinkedIn started in the summer of 2003. The reason Back to Gladwell. So I'm still living in Paris. I'm reading Gladwell where he talks about the strength of weak ties. The notion that you have undue career benefits by your casual acquaintances rather than your strong acquaintances. I was so blown away by this, I read this book twice. And when LinkedIn came out, I was like, oh my God, the digital application of the strength of weak ties. So I'm doing my first year of business school. And I'm like LinkedIn, strength the weak ties, and everybody's looking at me like I'm crazy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like, who's this guy? He reads a lot.
2: And then I was talking to my girlfriend, now wife, who's in law school. I said, "Babe, strength the weak ties. LinkedIn, got to get on it." She's like, "I'm studying for torts. Leave me alone." I finally got her on LinkedIn, but you know, I, I think that we we forget the academic research on what's behind the point of these technologies in the first place. So, so yes, uh, and I have a chapter in my book on LinkedIn. For me, you know, the first thing when I when I when I, when I look when, when I talk to somebody and we talk about LinkedIn, I'm like, if you know them in r- real life, have you connected with them on LinkedIn? Like, and we go from like 2023 to 2022 to 20. Like, if you know them in real life, connect with them on LinkedIn. That's like the most foundational thing. And there are so many people out there that. You know, I look at their profiles, and they haven't.
0: What I always share with folks is, this if you want to, you know, how does it look? Like it's, it's for me, it's like a footprint, right? So mm-hmm. for, and I tell the students this, but like for future em, em, employment, like if you are into leadership, uh, like I am, I want to have articles or other resources on there tied to leadership, so that when I do go to search for that job. You already have that built and you can say to your, say to your, you know, here's the portfolio. I mean, I don't, obviously it's nothing application based, but this shows you my passion is for leadership. This shows you my passion is for this, or I'm good at social media marketing, even from just even that standpoint of being able to use LinkedIn in an effective tool in an effective way.
2: Yeah. I mean, if you were to look at the activity section on your LinkedIn profile, you have a sense of who the person is. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and it's,
1: and it's six. Now degrees. I know Jason's judging me, but I like
0: that. <laughs> <Nah>! <laughs> it's six. It's six degrees of separation, like the Kevin Bacon game, because it's like I know I know Jason, who knows XYZ, who knows this, who can get you kind of in the door, and it, and and that's that's where the value really starts to happen on LinkedIn, is because it will show yeah. you those pieces. Well, we yeah. found you a different way. We didn't find you on LinkedIn, but I'm glad we found you. Because it's been an awesome time. He found us. He found us.
1: Which I love. We look forward to having you back on campus and we want everybody to buy your book on Amazon, uh, anywhere books are sold, Relationships to Infinity, the art and science of keeping in touch.
2: Thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Rob. Appreciate you both.
1: So the true test of us will be how well we keep in touch with Jason. Like he's saying he's going to send us a postcard. We're like, we should be like sending him postcards. We probably should do that. We
0: should do that actually now.
1: <laughs> yeah. Actually, we should, should we up? go to the bookstore? We <laughs> should get a postcard because I feel like that is a
0: test. I feel like that's a- I
1: know. I feel like he's going to be like looking at our LinkedIn's. He's going to drop the hint out.
0: and be like, I didn't hear back from these people. An email. That's all I am to you people. It's just another email in my inbox. I know. But he, look how many cool things he did.
1: I know. He's he, really well, impressive.
0: Uh, from the student government association, he jumped in his fresh and uh, his freshman year for a guy who didn't know really what he wanted to do, but then helped create things like the the ambulance uh, that he got for the EMTs. Um, I
1: mean, the Froyo most important. The Froyo was the most obviously. was the most
0: important. We didn't ask him Jimmys or sprinkles, but he's uh, from North Jersey, so he sprinkles with, for sure. Uh, I'm, I'm sprinkles, sure. Sprinkles, yeah. Did you say sprinkles or. Uh, uh, You know what? I don't really remember what I said. I don't really. You don't get sprinkles on your ice cream? No. I say sprinkles. Because I feel like they get my teeth. Oh. Yeah. Well,
1: I don't get a You lot shouldn't of, let that stop you from having a good time.
0: <laughs>
1: just carry around some flaws. You're
0: yeah, like I don't know. Out. I don't think I do that much, but uh, no. But he was a great time. He was a great, th- and I love the book recommendations. That kind of thing is always sort of in my wheelhouse. The professional yeah, Rob development Rob has a side. lot of
1: notes, so yeah. I think we should, when we release the podcast, we'll just copy Rob's notes. And we, we'll we'll them show them these out.
0: things. They're like epics. They do. They're, they're, they're epics. But uh, and he you knew and he you knew another alum, so that was that was that was cool for it. Uh, close. I mean he knows a lot of alums cuz that's what we do, but
1: Yeah, you know. we yeah, that's kind of our wheelhouse, but uh, just another awesome alum doing great things out in the world.
2: You've been listening to Beyond the Brown and Gold on Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS FM. You can find more episodes on your favorite podcasting platforms by searching for Beyond the Brown and Gold or Rowan Radio on demand.